Hello and welcome to Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Jeff Dyer, the author of very many books on all sorts of different subjects, but his latest is a scholarly scene-by-scene consideration of the film On Where Eagles Dare, called Broadsword Calling Danny Boy. Jeff, why would you write a book about this sort of slightly crappy old war movie? (laughs) Well, I know this is meant to be a sort of cordial chat, but I have to take issue with your description of it as a scholarly book. It's really not. It's more, uh, it's more like the, the book that somebody with a hobby would write. So it's a kind of, let's call it a love letter, actually. Scholarly. Maybe I shouldn't have said scholarly, maybe erudite. It hasn't got much in the word footnotes, but yeah, you bring in, you know, Martha Gellhorn and various philosophers. On, on you know. page one, yeah. Right on page yeah, one. It's a, it's a love letter and it's a celebration, but it's, you're right in that it's very, very detailed. But yeah, it's just an ex- a celebration of this film, which came out in 1969 when I was about 10. And weirdly, my love of it shows no signs of diminishing. And it's you're right in a way, it is a sort of crappy film, but it's also... Well, I think I'm you put in the epigraph, don't you? You say, you have Max Jacobs' epigraph saying, that idiot movie, now I find it blessed. Yes, and I don't know if you received a proof copy of the book, but it didn't have that epigraph. And then rather wonderfully, I was at some literary festival in, I think it was Ohio, and somebody delivered this paper on Max, Max Jacob, and uh, that was one of the poems in the, the sort of handout. And I realised, oh my God, great, I've got an epigraph. Because although people might think some of my books are pretty crap, the epigraphs have always been first rate. And uh, <laughs> late in the day, this epigraph came my way. Now... You describe in the afterword it being a sort of companion piece to your previous book, which was on a very different film, the 2012 book Zona, which is about Tarkovsky's long and you know very highbrow silent movie Stalker. And you say you think that is the only movie that would sustain such a book being written about it. Yeah, you know, because people asked me about that. You know, why did I write a? You know, why did I write about that film? And I was adamant that's the only film I could ever devote a whole book to. And of course, it's a it's a work of you know high seriousness, one of the greatest films ever made. And it's it's a kind of Everest style film. I it's a test of the viewer's endurance and discernment. You know. But at the same time, all the time that I was being interviewed and saying these very high-minded things about the great artist, you know, Tarkovsky and him as this sort of Saint Tolstoyevsky kind of uh, (sighs) figure, I was all the time aware that bubbling under there was another film that I loved just as much, which had no made no claims to being a a great sort of examination of the state of, of man's soul or something like that. And it was it was this one. And why do you love it so much? Well, do you know, normally one, I mean, to to go back, I wrote the Tarkovsky book to find out why this film that I'd seen so many times, why it haunted me so completely. And at the end of it, I really felt I'd arrived at some sort of answer. And not only that, I'd, I'd been able to see how technically some of the magic of the zone where Stalker happens, how that, how those effects had been created. With this one, I finished writing the book, and I still don't really know what's so wonderful about it. But yeah, it hasn't, as can happen if you write a scholarly book, you can end up hating and being really tired of the person or subject you're writing about. But this has not uh, exhausted my uh, my infatuation with the, the film at all. Maybe it has 
something to do with the rhythm of the film. But I think also, crucially, we have to go right back. It's like if you looked at me now, you could say, we're going to go back, back in time to my childhood, which was, of course, because I think I'm a bit older than you, Sam, aren't I? A little bit. Yeah, I was born in 19... 19- you look younger, but you're... I thought you were say, you look older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was born in 1958, and my childhood in the 1960s was so steeped in the Second World War, weirdly, perhaps even in a way that somebody born in 1948... Maybe their childhoods wouldn't have been in that it was in the 1960s that we had this endless recreation of the Second World War. Yes, do you think there's a sort of half generation on? I've noticed it with when my childhood was the Vietnam War. We lived it all secondhand through Platoon and Full Metal Jacket and all those kind of films. You know, the event happens and that generation remembers it and then the sort of cultural memory arrives. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. And we certainly saw that happening with the First World War in that you get that from 1918 to about 1928. There's very, very little published about the First World War. Then a decade later, boom, there's this great explosion of memoirs, poetry. You know, even Wilfred Owen is published, uh, the big selection of Owen is published t- t- 10 years after the end of the First World War. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, if you... Quite often, these old geezers in their 70s now, you know, they'll talk about the way that growing up in London was kind of, you know, it was still the the evidence of the bombing was still very apparent and there was all these kind of ruined buildings and it was a fun place to play. By old geezers, of course, I mean people like Keith Richards, this kind of, these kind of now quite well-known old geezers remembering their childhood. Okay, so the actual physical memory, uh, evidence of the Second World War was all around for people born in, say, 1948. But for me, it was just everywhere in the form of, first of all, the toys, those airfix soldiers, you know, very small ones. And then, you know, there were bigger soldiers. And then when I was about, I can't remember how old now, but, you know, the biggest toy of all, Action Man, came around. Yes, you have a, you have a very touching footnote on how devoted you were. Your favourite outfit for your Action Man was the snow fatigues wasn't it that's right which uh, of course they're you know they're kitted out in these rather elegant snow uh, snow patrol anoraks in where eagles dare so there's the toys there was all the comics those war and battle picture library comics which were british and then the american ones in color our fighting forces gi combat then of course all the all the films and as you move into the 1960s so those rather sort of let's say austere, reliable films like The Cruel Sea, you know, which are, you know, or even The Dam Busters, say, or Reach for the Sky, they give way increasingly to these more Hollywood-like kind of mission films, which have some elements of the, you know, of, of the James Bond escapade about them. There's a hell of a lot of that in there. I mean, it's, you know, reading it as you do, kind of. Incidentally, do you think this is something that the ideal way to read this is while watching the film. You know, watch a scene, read your section, or is it...? Yeah, sort of. It could... I had this similar problem with the Tarkovsky book in that at one point I thought... I looked up on the internet what the average reading speed was and I tried to work out if it was possible to read the book in real time. And it was at a certain point, but then as I blarred on more and more, uh, the book got longer and you'd have to read the book more and more quickly, which is really inappropriate for a slow-moving film like Stalker. This, I think, you could just about read it in, in, in real time. And I'm doing an event where we'll be 
showing some scenes from the film and I'll be reading my version of it. But it's a bit like the Steve Reichian idea of phasing. There will be bits where I'm completely in sync with the film and other bits where, you know, I'm I'm either lagging behind or slightly in, in advance of, of what's going on. But, you know, I would say that what this has in common with the Tarkovsky book is that you can read the book, I hope, independently of the film. But the big difference is that whereas relatively few people have seen the Tarkovsky film, Stalker, everybody in Britain has seen Where Eagles Dare at least six times. (laughs) Or at least, I mean, I say everybody, every man above a certain age has. Did you kind of re-watch it in order to write this and do it scene by scene? Because you've, you've got a bit where you say... You know, I've seen this film at least 30 times or whatever, or at least I've seen certain scenes in it at least 30 times, because there's this one scene you keep seeing, isn't there? Yeah, that would be another difference with Stalker, which is, uh, you know, such a great cinematic masterpiece. I'd seen that film lots of times at the cinema, you know, all the way through. Whereas Where Eagles Dare, it's a bit like The Great Escape. It's always, it's always on telly, it's always cropping up. And quite often I just, you know, turn in that way that one does. You come home from the boozer, turn on the TV and, oh, there's a bit of Where Eagles Dare. And I was struck by the way that, oh, it's always the same bit of Where Eagles Dare at, at sort of 11, 11.30. It's a bit where Bert- Burton gets in a shed with an attractive Fräulein. Get, yes, with Mary Yore, yes, the, <laughs> the, the, the woman who's also on the mission. And, you know, that makes one think, actually, do they only broadcast that particular bit of it? But, yeah, I was very conscious that, that I've seen it, I've seen it, I've seen bits of the film lots of times, and then for for to write the book, I did. I got the the DVD and you know made sure that I uh, that the misrememberings were not too too wide of the mark. Yeah, and how do you rate the two main male leads? I mean, you know, Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood are both very good actors, except for Clint Eastwood. Are they phoning it in? I mean, you describe Eastwood squinting all the time and Burton being sort of. Yeah, this is a big question about acting and they could in a way they they kind of exemplify these two different ways of acting so first of all Burton you know the the great Shakespearean who you know the sort of narrative goes he sort of squandered his talent by doing basically big earning films like this and rather limited perhaps as a as a screen actor but with that incredible voice so a lot of the plot exposition is done by Burton and it really is. It's like listening to 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 him do a Shakespeare speech. It's so fantastic. The voice, that baritone, is just so so wonderful. So let's say he exemplifies that British theatrical tradition of of acting. But of course, all those British actors also did film work because, of course, it's so fantastically well paid. And Burton also wanted to be a you know he 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 wanted to and became a big movie star and an amazing celebrity, all this kind of stuff. Then we have Eastwood, who's very definitely not a sort of, you know, he didn't come out of doing doing kind of Midsummer Night's Dream in rep or anything like that. Very much a, a screen actor. Famously, you know, taciturn. But you watch this film, which isn't, you know, it isn't, doesn't make such great demands on somebody's actorly abilities, you might think. But the way he moves in the film is so, so wonderful. And of course, crucially, I mean, he's just so amazing looking. And I think he's never looked better than he than he did in this film. So all of the you know in all of the action sequences, 
there's something just wonderful about just watching him move in this panther-like way across the screen. And I so remember this documentary about Eastwood when they interviewed the sort of boozy old Burton. He said, yeah, he had this quality of dynamic lethargy, which I think so such a beautiful way of summing up Eastwood's, Eastwood's movement. As an actor... I mean, Eastwood is an even bigger movie star than than Burton. And, of course, he's a huge movie star. As an actor, he's rather limited. He doesn't have great range in terms of what he does. And, you know, I was struck by the way that it's, his range is, can be just summed up in terms of the different emphases he gives to his squint. You know, maybe he squints even better in Dirty Harry than he does anywhere else, but it's all about the squint. But that's point of perfection you're at a very high level already aren't you <laughs> does it do you think affect I and mean, it's certainly something in the book you bring in a lot the fact that as you're watching a film like this it's you bring to it all the story of you know you bring to it Eastwood's stardom and all the other films he's appeared in you bring you know Burton's booziness in it you know we know Burton was this sort of catastrophic alcoholic and so all the way through you've got this sort of subtext of you know does he want to drink oh he's in the pub great um, I mean, do you think you, it would be different to watch the film, as it were, innocently? Yes, it would be. But for a film like this, you know, it's impossible to watch it innocently because it's so completely imprinted on, on, on our childhoods, I think. Especially when you think now, I mean, yeah, there's loads of celebrities around. And quite often if we're watching TV and, or whatever, I'll say to, to my wife, God, who's that? And she'll say, it's X, somebody who I've maybe the name rings a bit of a bell but you know we knew all about Burton's life you know there were only on the Parkinson show I don't know how many guests he had let's say 50 60 you know there weren't that many celebrities but Burton the Burton and Taylor story was was you know constantly in the in the in the the headlines when I was a kid so in a sense I reject your question it's impossible to be innocent of it now my wife this morning said wasn't there a book of that before it became a film. And it was a book after it became a film, wasn't it? That's right. You know, Alistair MacLean was really one of the very first writers, probably the first writer I read. I read his entire oeuvre, you know, and I think, I mean, I... Good literary grounding for you? <laughs> sort of, it was. I mean, it, one grows out of, you know, it's hard to conceive of an adult reader. I was just, I would love to have got hold of the, the figures of what the Alistair MacLean demographic was. Was I firmly in the centre of it as a infatuated 12 or 13-year-old? So it certainly seems like a right load of old rubbish when you read it as a grown-up. Where Eagle Stare seems particularly rubbishy, possibly because, yeah, he wrote this, you know, he was commissioned to write a screenplay. I think he'd not done a screenplay before. And the producer, Elliot Kastner, thought it was absolutely brilliant. And then, of course, it was going to become a whopping great film. So he did, the, he did what they call in the trade the novelization, having done the screenplay. And you were disappointed. You, you, you said at one point you were going to try and have a... Postscript that was going to be Alistair MacLean, a critical re-evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I liked the idea of subjecting it to the Levis-like moment of scrutiny, the, the, the MacLean Irv, and I've still got all my MacLeans. And, you know, I thought it would be really interesting to see what they were like, but they were just, it was so, they were, un, they seemed to me to be just unreadably bad. Although... And yet the script is good. I've, I've not read the script, but the script allegedly, Kastner could, the producer could see that the script would lead to a great movie, which it, it certainly did. And Was it Kastner who gave it its Shakespearean title? Yes, that's right. Yeah, he said it had some, uh, 
It, uh, originally, McLean had given, given it some fucking awful title, Kastner said, which is surprising because many McLean books have, have, have fantastic titles. When Eight Bells Toll, you know, The Last Frontier, The Golden Rendezvous, these, these titles had a great impact on my, on my then young mind. And, yeah, they're just not to be read by me, but except, I mean, I still have this admiration for him because I write, I write novels too, They've always been, but I've always been hampered as a novelist by, as you know, by not being able to think of plots. And the plots... I remember seeing someone at a launch party for one of your novels saying, the thing about Jeff is he can't make anything up. (laughs) (laughs) I can extrapolate, though, yeah. You know, so, yeah, never been able to think of plots. And when I watch films, you know, any, any of these kind of thrillers, I'm always struck by these fantastic twists and turns in the plot and I always think god how do they think this up so I really do although you know it's there are some gaping plausibility holes in the plot of where eagles dare I do admire <laughs> MacLean for his ability to come up with these amazing plots now your own work as you say you know you write novels you write it's quite fugitive in terms of its subjects and it's often you produce the unexpected book and I know that is, at least in my understanding, you know, you famously you were asked to write a book about D.H. Lawrence and you produced a book about the impossibility of writing a book about D.H. Lawrence because you couldn't get around to it. You were, I think, commissioned to write a book about tennis and that produced a book about Zona, <laughs> yeah. a book about Tarkovsky. Was this originally supposed to be a book about, I don't know, sheep farming or something totally <laughs> different? <laughs> yeah. No, this was just... This was one of those bunking off things where, you know, I really, as you're absolutely right in your summary of these things, and so I know now that I really don't like to be commissioned to, to, to write books. I much prefer just to write stuff and then hope somebody will publish it. So this was just something I did, you know, for fun, really. And then I realized, well, God, is you know, I think it is a lot of fun. You know, it's I'm having fun writing it. The problem was that I knew it was never going to be a, a very long book, and you know, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really. Sus- I, I think a film like *Where Eagles Dare* couldn't really sustain a, a kind of three-volume uh, study. And then I was in touch with somebody, you know, and I said, you know, what's? How do you feel about very short books? And the publisher said, uh, *Penguin*. Simon Winder said, "We love short books." <laughs> Oh, there you go. So, yeah, it was just a, a little sort of side project. But it was a side project at a time when I didn't have a main project on the go either. So it was uh, it was my side main. A double bunking off. Brilliant. <laughs> Did you? I mean, there's a, I, I read a phrase that stuck in my head recently. Somebody, I think reviewing Nausgaard, actually, said, the critic Keith Miller said, of course, Jeff Dyer's books could all be called What Am I Like?, do you see your work as kind of adding up to a sort of slant autobiography? I mean, I know Nausgaard approaches autobiography quite directly through fiction. You know, there's like an auto-fiction, it's a big mm. thing. Do you think you're doing something similar in the world of non-fiction? Yeah, it, well, I mean, God, this, is, it's, uh, this book is very much a kind of uh, a, a little bit of, a, of an autobiography in that I'm talking mainly about an experience that I had as a kid which lasted two hours and 20 minutes. And if the whole of my 
autobiography or my memoir of my childhood were to be written about at this kind of length, it would way exceed Nausgaard's capacity for detail. It would become a Tristram Shandy-like thing because I'd have to live to be about 2,000 years to, <laughs> to, to complete the composition of the... This is, yeah, it is a little bit of, a, of an autobiography, but if somebody says all of my books are this or that then I'm aware that 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 comment is, it could be applied to some of them. But whenever anybody says anything about my stuff, I always want to say, yeah, but what about... So, for example, there's the history of photography, the ongoing moment, which doesn't have any... I'm not there at all. It's just a history of photography. The jazz book, I'm but beautiful, I'm not in that either. The First World War book, I'm only there as a... I'm not, I'm not there as a... The persona isn't there at all. So... There's a lot, although I, there's a, there's, I've written so many different kinds of books that whatever anybody says about the body of work as a whole, I can always think of four or five books that it doesn't apply to. Right. What, do you, what do you think of the Nascar project out of interest? Oh, well, I think it was, uh, I read volumes one and two, and I thought it was really, really exciting and interesting. And then I found I didn't have any great urge to continue because I felt I'd got it. And then someone was saying, oh, but volume six is so great. So I was tempted to read volume six, which to my dismay, I see is, uh, you know, 1200 pages long. (laughs) It's sort of a war and peace kind of scale. So I'm faced with this thing, you know, is the greatness of volume six only really manifest if you've properly trudged through the foothills of the previous volumes? You know, would it be bad to go one, two, and six? I have history of reading sequences of novels in a very weird order. I think I read Updike's rabbit books. I think I went three, four, two, one. <laughs> so, yeah, I am. It just seems a whopping great commitment to read volume six of the Nausgaard, even though I know, and I feel sure of this, that when you get into a, a book, it takes no more time to read a thousand page book than it does a 250 page book. I mean, I know it does in absolute terms, but in terms of if you get really absorbed in it, then, you know, you can you, you find enough pockets in the day to, to you know, to put to put the book in. Well, your, one of your collections of essays was called Anglo-English Attitudes, and you're quite an English writer, I think, in terms of your sensibility. You might dispute this. I mean, you've got European interests and so on. But you've transplanted to L.A. Has that changed your outlook on the world, do you think, or your Not significantly, because L.A. is full of English people. <laughs> it was like the... It's, you know... Yeah, I mean, I would... Ex- I mean, I, that, the line of Lawrence's, which I keep find myself quoting more and more you know and he says yeah you know I'm English English in the teeth of all the world even in the teeth of England I think that's that's something so crucial about England so the Brexit vote for example you know there was all this stuff about immigration they're all trying to get in you know shut the door we're full but what that neglected is the fact that okay even if they are all trying to get in there's an equally big crowd of people heading to the exit door there's always been a great you know tradition of british people and british writers going to america and going to the west of them so you know i'm really conscious of being in you know uh, you know lawrence of course you know lives it happily for a while and then unhappily in in new mexico but yeah you know um, uh, theodore adorno ended up there as well well that's right all the german emigres and then of course i'm very conscious that i'm living just down the road from where Isherwood was, Huxley was there. So yeah, there's, I'm part of that great migration. 
Do you think you might write about it? Well, the bits of that book, White Sands, you know, the last three chapters are, are, are about L.A. And so, yeah, I guess I write about everything that happens to me. I feel mainly conscious, though, that... I'm kind of living in L.A. at the wrong time of my life. I mean, I feel I'm entering the phase where I could just quite happily, you know, be like Prospero and be just in my study with my books, you know, whereas I'm living in this place where now where it's so much more of a sort of outdoor, you know, physical kind of life. And, you know, all the time I'm there, I'm thinking I would be enjoying this so much more if I was 35. (laughs) But then... I think that probably applies to practically everything in life. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a very easy feeling. I can't, I can't let you go without asking just briefly, have you made up with Julian Barnes? I know that notoriously you wrote an absolutely witheringly savage and very funny review of his Man Booker winning the sense of an ending for the New York Times. And he's, he sort of struck back in a review of somebody else's book about tennis where he took an entire paragraph and I'll just come baseball back you. Do you regard this as a as a feud? Um, no, I mean, but it was, I was, I mean, it was a classic instance of what they call in journalism a drive-by, that Julian Barnes thing in that, you know, he's reviewing Will Skidelsky's book on Federer and then out of the blue he's like... <laughs> I think because Will had quoted you, hadn't he? Yeah, so that's something. right. So it really, and it, it, it called, yeah, it was really, it was so, it was so, so insulting and so obviously just you know getting getting back at me. But there, there's there's no feud at all. There's lots of you know. I thought I still think Flaubert's Parrot is a fantastic book, and yeah, there's no uh, you know. I haven't received a Christmas card from him since then. But since I hadn't received a Christmas card from him before, I don't think uh, our relationship has been fundamentally altered. Well, there we go, Jeff Dyer. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. 